This is episode 37 with Loretta Graziano Bruning. And today we'll be talking about how you can develop those habits to have a happy brain. Retrain your brain to boost your happy chemicals. So this is the idea of wiring yourself to have the confidence that you can shift out of a bad feeling without relying on that old bad habit. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? Or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance, and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Hi, welcome to another episode of Citrus Love Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Happy you're here. So today you're in for a very valuable episode and that's all about how can you control your brain and feel happier when you want And that's all about retraining our minds, retraining our brains to boost those happy chemicals. So today we have an expert that will be talking about that. So you can have the power over your brain. How many of us sometimes say, oh, I feel like I'm losing my mind, or you have millions of thoughts, Uh, maybe you're stressed, maybe you're nervous, maybe you're excited, maybe you've seen something on TV and or someone said something to you and, and now your mind is just racing and, and you keep thinking about these thoughts or maybe you just want to feel more in control of your mood. So you've probably heard about our animal instincts, the fight or flight or freeze. And where does that come from? Today, we're going to go a little bit deeper with that. You're going to learn how that primal mammalian brain of yours has not been erased, is still there. And that's how sometimes you feel like you might be acting instinctively or like an animal, even sometimes just not really thinking things through. Human side thinks, reflects, and the animal side is more impulsive. So today I have an expert that's going to discuss both brain. So who is Loretta Graziano Bruning? She is a mother of two, a teacher, author, writer. She has her own podcast called the Happy Brain Podcast. And she speaks multiple languages as she speaks French, English, Spanish. And she is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute, which provides resources that help people rewire their mammalian neurochemistry. In other words, rewire their animal brains. She focuses on happiness and how it comes from chemicals we've inherited from earlier mammals. When you know how they work in animals, your ups and downs make sense, and then you become more aware. And with some tips that she's going to share today, you'll learn how you can control those ups and downs and surges with the help of the chemicals that are boosting bursts, spurts, spurts of highs and happiness and lows. And so this way you can learn to control those bursts and feel happier when you need to and when you want to. So how awesome is that? So she's a professor at Emerita, California State University, where she teaches. Uh, she's been seen in Dr. Oz, Forbes, Cosmopolitan, Wall Street Journal, Psychology Today, featured in Real Simple Magazine, other psychologies magazines. Today, we'll be talking specifically about one of her books that I read and knew I had to share her valuable insights with you, and that's Habits of a Happy Brain, how to retrain your brain to boost your serotonin, dopamine, oxytocins, and endorphins levels. 
and this has helped thousands of people around the world. Her books have been translated in multiple languages. And before she began teaching, she volunteered for United Nations in Africa, where she learned more about the mammalian customs. Also worked in a zoo, where she gave family-friendly tours on the social behavior of mammals and studied animal conflicts. She's an author of multiple books, The Science of Positivity, Tame Your Anxiety, Meet Your Happy Chemicals, I'm Mammal, and she has on her website tons of free resources for you. If you're interested to learn more, definitely go check that out. I'm so happy I got a chance to speak with her, and it was very interesting mixing both the animal brain and our more emotional human evolve brain together for this conversation. If you do enjoy this episode and you want to know more, I do send out my favorite quotes from each episode in my newsletter. So go to citruslove.com and you'll see either a pop-up or a subscribe box so you can subscribe and also other freebies. So get ready to learn how you can control your mammalian brain. Welcome, Loretta. Thank you for being here today. I have one very random question before we start, because I read that you love color, and I'm also a woman that loves color. Curious to know which colors are your favorites? Why do you love color so much? Oh, thank you. Well, I like orange. I use this as an example of the nonverbal brain. So if I love color, it means that it has to do with an early experience and it's a nonverbal experience. So, you know, I could give you some philosophical argument, but that's not really what makes us like stuff. It's a positive association from the past. So when I was a kid, my parents gave me a lot of arts and crafts kits. You don't see them as much today, but one of them was you make your own mosaic, but the mosaic pieces, you know, first they were plastic and they were like ceramic tile. And then I was given a lot of these art paint by numbers kits. So Mm -hmm. I spent a real lot of time doing these things and, you know, constantly focused on a color, you know, picking that color to put in that spot. And even though I wasn't consciously choosing it, I was doing it by directions that it built up that positive association. Now, why Mm. did I feel good about that? One child may hate that, you know, you may give them that and they feel bad about it. I actually, I, I grew up around a lot of, let's call it yelling. And I needed desperately like anything to focus on, to blot it out and to calm myself and anything I could focus on that wasn't going to get me into more trouble, cause more yelling. You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? So this was like 1950s parenting and (laughs) not as common today. (laughs) So that's my story. And then the interesting thing though was when got to make a decision for myself, it was when I had a home economics class and they were teaching us to sew and I had to come to class with fabric. And so my mother let me loose in the fabric store and let me pick my own, which was like such a miracle that I just got to pick my own. So I looked at like, you know, hundreds of fabrics. So that was more of that like scanning colors. And scanning is something our brain evolved to do because in the state of nature, you had to find food by constantly scanning the world around you. Mm-hmm. So I was using all of my natural brain functions for something that I had a positive association with. Mm, very interesting. You mentioned your childhood quickly. I'm curious to know because you mentioned quite a few times the word conflict, for example, on your website. Talk a bit about your childhood and your relationship with conflict and how that eventually links back to what you're doing today. Well, I was around a lot of conflict, but it wasn't real in the sense that I think my mother was replaying bad experiences from her childhood in her head. And so my father was very passive and tried to not create trouble. And I learned from him. So I was very withdrawn and tried to not make trouble. So when I grew up and I looked for maybe psychological insights to help me grow, I was already sort of aware of how much power 
past experience has over us. And I was not so quick to believe verbal theories. Like if my mother said, the reason I'm yelling at you is because of X, Y, and Z, I knew on some level that that was not the reason. So that's why I always didn't believe superficial explanations of things. Mm. So that's why facts and, and the science behind things probably became more interesting to you in order to believe. Yes. But when you say facts and science, everyone uses facts and science to their own end. So many mm. people today are saying, well, the reason we have conflict is because of this reason or that reason, and they'll point to their statistics to prove it, but they will ignore um, like taking responsibility for the emotions that we're all born with. And often people try to blame their emotions on society. So I'm not so quick to accept those kinds of explanations. Mm. So basically, eventually, you you learn about the conflict within an animal herd, which made you understand the brain chemistry behind mammalian social drama. And you write that that gave you a sense of peace, why conflict was happening a certain way. What did you realize when you learn about animals and how they behave? Simple answer is, it's not my fault. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that um, I maybe grew up feeling responsible for the yelling that was going on, despite the fact that I had tried everything I could think of to create peace. And so I sort of got the same indoctrination from my college professors when I left home. Somehow, like, we're at fault if there's conflict around us um, because our society is bad and we have to constantly atone for the sins of society. And it's like, well, this is so similar to what I heard when I was growing up. Uh, so then when I learned that Animals have conflict in their herds a lot, and yet they stick with the herd anyway because they get eaten alive if they leave. And this creates a lot of internal conflict, and every one of us has that internal conflict. And so suddenly it's like not such a big deal. It's like, oh, that's just my old brain response and creating new chemicals that make me feel like my survival is threatened, but I know that my survival is not really threatened and I'm not going to be eaten alive if I distance from the herd and I'm not going to be bitten by others if I stay with the herd and don't go along with, with everything they do. Mm, so it gave you a sense of freedom Yes, and also freedom from my momentary emotions. So I've written a bit lately on anxiety, like when somebody has threat chemicals flooding, that in that moment, you think, well, there must be really a threat, otherwise I wouldn't be having this feeling. But then when you know how the brain works, you say, oh, I'm having this threatened feeling because this situation resembles a certain pattern in my childhood. And this chemical will be in my blood for an hour, and then I'll excrete it, and I'll be back to normal. When you tell yourself that, life feels a lot safer. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned that, well, as mothers, we want to protect our kids from hardship, conflicts. At the time when your kids were at the age where you could teach them a lot of things, what were you telling your kids, or how were you protecting them from conflicts? Well, very sadly, what I know today about the brain is not what I knew when my kids were young. Mm -hmm. So after they both left home, I took early retirement and started studying more seriously. Before mm. then, I just knew the official academic view and, and pretty much accepted it which was a lot of, I now call it externalizing. So I was so determined not to yell at my kids the way I was yelled at and not to have that kind of pandemonium. But because of that, I went to the other extreme because I didn't have any middle level practical skills. So I was one of those sort of anything goes parents. And that fit the ideology of the time, which was that the child knows best, just reinforce whatever the child wants and applaud them no matter what they do. And now I see that that was not a good thing. Mm, so you would have uh, <laughs> adjusted your ways a little bit, knowing what you know now. 
<laughs> yes, yes. And, and it's a real complication. So to adjust then, that means if you don't go along with everything, then you have the risk of conflict. So mm-hmm. I was indoctrinated that I was the cause of the conflict. You know, if you say no to your kids and they have a tantrum, then that tantrum is like blamed on you for saying no. That that was the worldview I had. And the problem is that my ex-husband agreed with that worldview. So the real thing was I, I had to really get him on board and I did not succeed at that. I didn't succeed in presenting a united front to the kids. And I now think that that's, you know, the most important thing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about one of your book. Um, I read The Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. And uh, just by reading it, at first you think, okay, this is going to be like based on science and all these hormones, but you wrote it that it was so easy to understand, like what could have easily become complicated or very specialized, made it easy, which I I love and totally made sense. And, And you actually identified like common patterns and how primates behave and how over the the millions of years have translated how a modern human's survival instinct sometimes they kick in and it comes from there talk about some of the physical differences between the brain of an animal and our brain like you mentioned the bigger a mammal's brain, the longer its childhood, because it takes time to wire a brain. Can you explain a bit about that aspect? Sure, sure. So to just put it very simply, if you think that we have two brains, the pink fluffy part that you always see in pictures, and then underneath that, there's a core of structures that people have probably heard of, like the amygdala and the thalamus. And these things are almost the same in animals. And these things control the chemicals that make us feel good and bad. Now, in the animal world, they make decisions all day, every day, like whose fur should I groom? Which fruit should I invest effort going after? And they make these decisions without the big pink fluffy part that we use to have language and to think about the future and to abstract. So this under part of our brain, which I'll just call the mammal brain, it can do a lot, but it's not always right. So that's why we have two brains and they need to work together. But they don't often work together uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And the main one is that either one doesn't understand the other because the verbal brain is what you talk to yourself in words. And then when you have emotions, then people say, well, I didn't think that in words. So that's not really me, (laughs) but it really is you. (laughs) But how can you control it when like talking to it in words doesn't work because it's it's sort of like talking to an animal, you know? Mm -hmm. So like if you have a, imagine you have a dog and you tell the dog not to do something, but the dog is still living in the world of real consequences that if you give it a treat, it does one thing. If you hit it, it does another thing. And if you're still giving it a treat or a, a, a slap, that's what controls it, not the fancy words that you use. Okay, so about the pink fluffy part, the words that we um, use to talk to ourselves, when we are born, that is empty. It's, uh, It's like a brand new computer with nothing loaded on it except the operating system. The animal brain is the operating system. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be just acting like an animal until you gradually add, you could say it's like adding apps to a computer. A simple example is if you have a toddler who grabs toys from other children, that's like a normal natural behavior. I see a toy, I want a toy. If you're weaker than me, I'll grab it. If you bite me, I won't grab it. So that's the animal brain. And then we slowly, gradually add all different skills that are useful in meeting your own needs in adult life. Our brain is always compared to uh, chimpanzees. Is that because that's the animal brain that's the closest to ours? Yes, Um, and and chimpanzees have huge teeth and they bite each other, you know? So it takes a big brain 
to restrain yourself and to say, even though I'm stronger than you, I'm not going to hurt you because, and the because from my perspective is because I know that there's long run consequences. That's why people restrain themselves. But the politically correct view that's being taught in psychology classes these days is not that you know there's consequences, but is because our natural state is peace and love. And I think that's a misrepresentation. (laughs) (laughs) And most of those people don't have kids. (laughs) They don't stay home with their kids. Not only that, if you say that we're not essentially good, you're just kicked out of the club and your work is ignored and it's hard to keep your job. I swear. Mm. What are you saying exactly that it's because of the animal instincts in all of us that is guiding some of our behaviors? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so okay. if, if you look at the dying, I'm, I'm, all my websites and presentations mm-hmm. um, show these pictures. I have a lot of slideshows online at intermammalinstitute.org slash slideshows. And if you look it up, or anybody can look it up in another way, a brain of smaller animals and then gradually bigger. So the core is very similar. And then the the cortex, which I call, you know, the pink fluffy part, it just gets bigger and bigger with each animal. And I explain this in the book. Why does the Mm -hmm. cortex get bigger and bigger? It's because it's a bigger capacity to learn ways to restrain the core operating system. But the core operating system is still the same because of the biology, which is that the brain is connected to the body with chemicals. So chemicals are the motivation system that says, when I see something that meets my needs, a good chemical, a good feeling chemical is released, and that tells my body, this is good for you, go get it. And when you see something that has hurt you in the past, a bad feeling chemical is released, and this says, this can hurt you, avoid it. And that's our core operating system, and we still need that core brain. So even though you may deny that that core brain is there, it's still running you. And so you have to work very hard to restrain it. I hear all the time people talk about survival instinct, like that fight or flight or freeze. A lot of people refer to that. That's your your basic instinct and it kicks in. And so are you saying that this is something that will always remain or by rewiring our brains, we can con- learn to control it? Okay. So yeah, that's, that's the two-part question and it's very, very important. So we're always going to have that core mammal brain. It's never going to go away. So here's the problem with that. That fight or flight thing is true, but it's only half the story. It's only the, the bad half. The good half about our happy chemicals, as opposed to our unhappy chemicals, they don't talk about that and they ignore the chemical side of happiness, so they only focus on the chemical side of unhappiness. Now, animal brain will always be there. That In my work, I talk about rewiring, but when I talk about rewiring, it's rewiring your early circuits because the, the mammal brain will always have control over your chemicals, but how do you control them is with circuits built from experience. So a simple example is, When an animal eats a certain food, a good feeling is released, and that builds a circuit that motivates the animal to look for that food. So you have foods that you loved when you were a kid, and you are motivated to look for them. But let's say you don't like a certain behavior that you have in regard to food. So I'm teaching people how to rewire that only by their own choice. And from a parenting perspective, to be careful about how you reward your children because, you know, the the simple example is if you reward them with food, they're going to build circuits to reward themselves with food. That's just one example, though. There's, there's Mm -hmm. There's millions of examples. Yeah, it's only we're aware of that, that we can realize it when we're doing it. Yes. So talking about habits, 
when is the easiest time to rewire or to build new habits? Because we always hear it, uh, basically you can, they can learn any language very quickly in the first couple of years. Is that the ultimate, the best time for them to establish habits because they're starting from zero? Yes, absolutely. But here's a, a few little facts to add on. So there's something called myelin, which is like the paving on our neural pathways. So um, we have a lot of myelin when we're under eight and during puberty. So whatever happens to you in those years, think of it sort of like clay. It's whatever happens to you repeatedly builds like the interstate highway system of your brain. So that's what you want to pay attention to the repeated experiences that you're giving your children in those years so that they have the pathways you want. But the complication, and everyone maybe already knows this from the, um, the sign you put on your refrigerator that says, you know, do what I say, not what I do, or mm -hmm. children learn from what you do rather than what you say. And the reason for this is mirror neurons. And mirror neurons help us feel rewards when others around us feel rewards or feel good. When you get excited, your child says, oh, that's something to get excited about. And they start getting excited. When you fear something, your child feels your fears. So it's important to be aware of that. So a simple example would be, if you want your child to learn a foreign language, but you have anxiety about language school or something, you know, kids are going to pick up on that. Mm -hmm. So it's important to, to become aware of your own circuits and what you're actually communicating. And let's talk about the opposite. When is the most difficult time, like age-wise, to build new habits or to rewire the connections of old habits to healthier ones? You know, after puberty, which um, how to define that, you know, people are defining it as age 25 today. And I don't know, I haven't found reliable information. But once your myelin drops, then you are not storing new responses as easily. But you can still learn. It's just that it takes more repetition. So the simple example is that Adults can learn a foreign language, but it takes so much repetition that most people don't do it. So it's the same thing with your emotions, that you can wire yourself to get excited about new ways of life, but it takes so much repetition that most people don't do it. Um, I feel like I should say something about children like pre-puberty, because I don't want to sound like I'm giving them a bad rap, okay? <laughs> So after age seven, myelin plateaus and drops a bit and children are still learning. But before that, they're like a sponge so that whatever you tell them, they just reproduce it without questioning it. Whereas starting at eight, they learn new information, not by building a new branch on their tree of knowledge, but by building new leaves onto the branches that they already have. So because they have less myelin, it's harder to build a new branch. And that's good because that motivates them to file information into the file drawers they've already created. That would be like another way to say it. And that gives them some more um, confidence in like, if you tell me the moon is made of green cheese, I'm going to refer to my existing tree of knowledge before I just wire myself to believe that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's, that's what it does. And then in puberty, there's more myelin spurting, but they're not going to necessarily rewire their brain for you. Um, they're going to open themselves to other influences. And then they are inclined to build whole new branches for when other people tell them stuff, even if you don't agree with it. Um, uh, and repetition is, of course, a factor. But Okay, so let's talk about that. I found in your book there were two main things you kept uh, saying that really helps to rewire brains as adults, let's say as adults, when it's uh, not as easy to start implementing new habits or ways of thinking. One of the things you said is repetition, and then you also stated emotions. Can you talk about that? So emotion, again, is just rewards or threat. So let's say 
you send your child to school with some healthy habits. And then if they get laughed at in school for the healthy habit, then that triggers fear chemicals. And then they're going to say to themselves, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore because fear is that real emotion. And that has so much power. It's like heaving on your neural pathways. And if it happens repeatedly, then it builds an even bigger pathway. Now, we don't want our child to cave to the first time they're laughed at, so I don't want to sound like that, but the idea is the first time you're laughed at, then it just builds a small pathway that tells you to fear doing whatever it was that happened just before the moment of the the fear chemicals. And you're not even aware of what it was with your verbal brain. But the next time that situation comes up, you're afraid to do it again. But if you conquer that fear in that moment, then you can build a pathway that says, oh, I can do this. Even if, even if one kid laughs at me or even if five kids laugh at me, I know that I'm going to get a bigger reward in the long run by doing the right thing. So that's ideally what we want to happen. Like, how do you give the kid the reward if they're being laughed at at school? So that's a complicated thing. Mm -hmm. And first, you have to find out, you know, what triggered their fear. And then this is where the verbal brain comes in, that once you can talk about that fear, and that's when our verbal brain and our animal brain start connecting. And that's such a fabulous thing. And that's what I missed out on doing with my kids, to help them identify their emotions and then use their verbal verbal brain to become aware of that response and sort of to consciously try to redirect that response into something that they can see is more rewarding. Mm. When it's about rewards and emotions, that taps into our animal brain. Yes. Yeah. But everything is about rewards and emotions. We, that's what people may not want to admit it. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning. And that's every minute of every day, we are doing what we're doing because the expectation of a reward triggers dopamine. And that's the good feeling that says, this is what you need. Take that next step. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Another thing you said that I found very helpful for myself uh, as a mom and as an adult, a woman, is you said that if we don't act on a neurochemical impulse, let's say uh, my son wants to watch TV, but they don't turn on the TV or you say, no, you can't watch the TV, then the brain will have to generate an alternative, like play with something else. The concept of being able to shift your attention elsewhere. Talk about that because I found it very interesting. Thank you. You're saying this this moment where the child turns on the TV and you tell them not to. So in the moment that they're turning the TV on, it's because they expect watching TV to be rewarding. It's a combination of they didn't think of a, something else to feel rewarding. Like what else mm -hmm. could feel rewarding? But in addition, The word distraction is, is very significant here. So all day, we're pushing away bad feeling because the world is full of things that remind us of potential threats. That's how our brain is designed to work, is to see potential threats. And if other kids laughing at you triggered your threat chemicals, then that's a potential threat. And your whole huge system for fighting predators is activated when you think, oh, someone might laugh at me. So if I have a bad feeling of somebody might laugh at me, and then I watch TV, then I, I'm no longer thinking about people laughing at me. So I pushed away a bad feeling by watching television. And that's the important thing, that all day, every day, all of us are pushing away bad feelings by trying to focus on ways to feel good. And mm. sometimes you're so afraid of those bad feelings that you rush into something good that's actually bad for you in the long run. And so that's the idea is to say, when I feel bad, first, I'm going to be aware of it. And second, I'm going to give myself a whole menu of alternative ways to feel good. So I don't just rush into a habit That's like an instant gratification to distract me but from bad feeling. So, and I have a book on this called Tame Your Anxiety, Rewiring Your Brain for Happiness. So again, first is to become aware. And like child is not necessarily feeling bad every time they turn on the TV. What young people call boredom mm -hmm. um, is 
it's a fine line between sadness and boredom. So think about our animal ancestors. They had to look for food constantly. If they didn't find food, they would starve. So we are not designed to sit around and do nothing. So we are designed to constantly seek ways to meet our needs. But if you're a child, you're not necessarily already learned to direct yourself into effective steps because whenever you're meeting your needs, you're enjoying the good feeling of dopamine. So a simple example would be if I sit down with my granddaughter and say, let's do a puzzle. That's like a dopamine thing. It's like, where does this piece go? Where does this piece go? Where does it? So those are the kind of things that teach a child to, um, to know that if I get involved in an activity, I'm going to have that good dopamine feeling. But with my granddaughter, she's almost two. So I take all the pieces out of puzzle. And as I start to put the first one in, she already ignores me and picks up a different toy. <laughs> so, so that's why, you know, it takes some sensitivity to the stage a child is at. But this is the goal is we're teaching them how I can constantly shift from bad feelings to good feelings by taking action to meet my own needs. Mm. And you're saying that distracting ourselves or having the child dis distract themselves is a good thing. It's a good thing if you have what I call it is fill your pantry with healthy distractions so that you're not just using junk distractions and use distraction in a way that you're aware that you're doing it. So if something really bad happens to you in the book with this Tame Your Anxiety, set a timer for 20 minutes or 40 minutes, depending on how much time you have, and use the distraction while you're giving your body time to eliminate the threat chemical. Don't use it all day every day because you can't face your problem. How long does it take for that chemical to to disappear? Yes. So it take it has a half life of 20 minutes. So that means in 20 minutes you've gotten rid of half of it. In the next 20 minutes you got rid of half of whatever was left, which is now you've gotten rid of 75% of it. So once you've got rid of 75% of it, you know, you're you're starting to be able to function without just being negative. And in two hours, you've gotten rid of all of it, but in an hour, you've gotten rid of most of it. But there's an important but. If you don't give yourself downtime and you feel that cortisol surge, but instead of taking downtime, you try to just forge ahead with what you're doing, you go and have a negative attitude and you're likely to see the bad side of whatever you're doing. And often that triggers more cortisol and people end up in a cortisol spiral. And that cortisol spiral, you get said more and more and more. And that's what I'm teaching people to avoid. Mm. You shared, for example, if someone has a bad habit they want to remove, they want to replace, like smoking, drinking when you're stressed or binge eating. And every time they felt that need, they started coloring or drawing. Every time they had that same urge for that bad habit, they would go back and do exactly the same thing. And it, it distracted them, like you said, and made them feel better eventually because you, you didn't think about it. So this is the idea of wiring yourself to have the confidence that you can shift out of a bad feeling without relying on that old bad habit. So let's say the person wants the cigarette or the drink or the junk food, and many people learn the word triggers. But mm -hmm. I don't really I don't really use that because then people learn to blame the trigger like you triggered me. you know. So but if you become aware of that moment when you want something and then create an advanced plan of doing something else. And I'm not saying that you should draw or color, but choose something that you like. So in the book, I give a lot of examples and each person has chosen something they like rather than a should. And then you have to do that for a while and it doesn't feel good at first. So it takes a while to build a new pathway. And I even suggest practicing sometimes when even when you're not having that urge, just 
to get into that habit. And some examples I use a lot are, personally, I use comedy planned, like, you know, what are some things I like so that, you know, when I'm feeling bad, I have something to go to that I know I enjoy and that I won't think about other things. And then I also like to cook. So that's just another thing that, again, it's sort of reliable. I know then I have that advanced circuit that says, if I start feeling bad about something, I know that I have something that will help me feel better. And even when I have a really difficult task that I hate to do, I plan daily movie and my daily cooking like right after that thing that I don't like to do. Mm, That's a good tip. Yeah, so that I know that I won't let myself get stuck in a trough. Uh Another thing you you shared ever since I read it, I keep thinking about it, is that you say it takes 45 days for brains as adults to adopt a new habit. But if you skip one day, then it you have to restart at day one. Why is that? So the reason I said this, you know, and people have all different studies on this, but the yeah. reason I said it is because On the day that you don't do it, you're telling yourself something. You know, most people are saying, "Ah," you you know, the most famous example is the person that says, oh, I didn't drink for a week. I can have a drink today. It's no big deal. So as soon as you start telling yourself it's no big deal, that old pathway of it's no big deal is so big compared to the new behavior that you've only been building up, you know, seven days or 30 days. So the bottom line is, you want this new pathway for the rest of your life. So if you're saying, oh, I already did it for a few days, I don't really have to keep doing it, then you're still having the old theory of, I don't really need to do this. But after 45 days, the new pathway is big enough that it starts to feel natural. Again, to use the analogy of learning a foreign language, when you say something in your native language, you find the word so easily that you don't even realize that you're thinking. Whereas if you learned a foreign language and you have to think like, how can I order a hamburger in a restaurant in a foreign language? Like you're really trying. But if you can imagine that you get to a point where you can order a hamburger in a foreign language without an effort, it just comes to you. So that's what we're looking for. Okay. Like I keep hearing, oh, I have to start exercising or I have to exercise. But I didn't know you would need like 45 days to really have that new automatic rewiring for life. That takes a lot of dedication. Yeah, but the bottom line is that you're planning to exercise for the rest of your life. So why are you in such a hurry to stop after, you know, after a few days? Now, I'm not saying that um, you have to do it every single day. But if I mean, if you want to start off with a more realistic thing of I'm going to exercise every other day, I could do a less you know, do, you know, an easier one, one day and a harder one, the other, Mm -hmm. just as an example, I, I'm not saying that you have to have some gigantic goal, especially with huge changes, just start with a very small subset of the goal. And after those 45 days, you have that new pathway, that new rewiring in your brain. So it's much easier to go back to it. Yes. Okay. The Um, old pathway will always be there too. The old pathway that says, I shouldn't have to exercise. My life is so hard. So you're not replacing it. Exactly. You're redirecting it. What I say is, think about there's a, a highway with an exit and you're building a new highway and then you're also building an exit ramp from the old highway to the new one. So every time I tell myself I shouldn't have to exercise because my life is so hard, then I was like, yeah, that pathway's still there, but my exit is and make the, the, new, the new goal be realistic. Don't make it some unrealistic goal that you'll never reach. Okay, so your old pathways will always remain, but they're yeah. just they're just going to be weaker than the the other ones. It's actually it's biologically complicated. You're not going to be preactivating them a lot. Preactivating is like when your friends start talking about, "Hey, let's not exercise. Let's watch a movie and eat popcorn." I thought that would be an example of like preactivating the circuit. But that's why I really emphasize the exit ramp is to say, oh, so now I'm on that freeway of thinking about doing it my old way, 
but my exit ramp is, and then you have a plan for like how to redirect yourself. Okay. The book obviously focuses a lot on the happy brain chemicals. I want to talk a bit about that and some examples uh, for each one of tips that would be helpful to activate each specific one. Okay. For dope for dopamine, one of the example you had was to celebrate small victories. Talk about how is that happy brain chemical with uh, celebrating small victories? Sure. So dopamine is the basic motivational chemical. In daily life, people often call it joy or excitement. Joy or excitement is like a big surge of it. But in practical daily life, small drips of it are what keeps you going and keeps you feeling good. So if everyone is looking for that feeling of being on the mountaintop every minute, it's not realistic. Mm -hmm. So our ancestors, let's imagine like they would have starved if they didn't find foods. They were always looking for food. If they found a fish in a river, they were happy. If they found a big pond full of fish, then they were ecstatic, but they couldn't expect to find that every day. So it was finding the big pond full of fish builds a pathway in your brain to look for that. So we are always looking for whatever got us excited in our youth. And hopefully we've added on to that. <laughs> and we would love to have those big moments of being very excited on a mountaintop, but you don't get that unless you take a lot of steps toward it. So we all try to build that skill of taking a lot of small steps and you have a good feeling of accomplishment maybe when you get to the goal, but we all know that that doesn't last. So it's the daily small steps that we have more control over. And that's the kind of dopamine I suggest. Mm. Now for endorphins and one that I want to talk about it was stretching because I didn't expect that at all on the huh. on the list. Because we know exercise and laughing mm. and all that, but... Sure. So first, endorphin is the body's natural morphine. That's where the word comes from, endogenous morphine. It's an opioid. And why does the body naturally produce an opioid? It's only for moments of pain. So in the animal world, you've probably seen videos when an animal is attacked and has a predator's jaws like ripping open its flesh, but it's still able to run because endorphin masks pain. So it's only triggered by real physical pain and it masks it for about 15 minutes. So the simple example is, let's say you're walking down the street and you have a bad fall and people say to you, are you okay? And you say, yeah, I'm fine. And then 15 minutes later, you realize that you're really injured. So endorphin masks pain for 15 minutes and that's what gave our ancestors the ability to go for help when they were injured and then after that you feel the pain because we're meant to feel the pain so we are not intended to try to inflict pain on ourselves to have the endorphin we're only meant to have it for emergencies now most people have heard of runner's high where people run to the point of pain in order to get this um big surge of endorphin. But what I'm saying is we're not meant to have that surge, but we can have small amounts from um, laughing. We get a little bit because it jiggles certain deeper muscles that we don't use very often and stretching and getting up frequently and, and also exercise. But again, it's just a little and not saying that mm. you want the high. Okay. Next one is oxytocin. And I mean, a lot of mothers know yes. what that is with uh, yes. our hormones and pregnancy. Um, talk about that and how, and also the example of building on proxy trust. Sure. People know that oxytocin triggers uterine contractions and lactation. And in the animal world, it triggers herd behavior. So when a sheep leaves the flock, it could get eaten instantly. And so natural selection built a brain that rewards that sheep with oxytocin. When you stick with the herd, you get that good feeling of social support or trust. And when you leave the herd, your oxytocin falls and you start feeling unsafe. And that's what we've inherited. Now you may think, well, what the heck does lactation have to do with herds? And <laughs> it's a very simple answer, 
Um, in the reptile world, they only have oxytocin in their egg-laying muscle, which is akin to our uterine contractions. And then once the mother reptile has baby reptiles, there is no trust. They, the mother will eat the babies, so the babies run the instant they're born. And if they don't run fast enough, the mother eats them. So we have oxytocin after birth, and that's how mothers, all mammals, as opposed to reptiles, mammals nurture their young, whereas reptiles just see their young as food. Hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's amazing. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's mind-blowing. So when you see a lion licking its cub and you see a monkey fondling his baby, that's how they stimulate oxytocin. Touch stimulates oxytocin. So as much as the feeling of trust, we come to know it with our verbal brain that on a much deeper level, it's a chemical that we release in a context that reminds us of anything that triggered our oxytocin in the past. So you can see what a big thing that is. And a famous book um, by Marcel Proust, Remembrance of Things Past, he talks about going into a bakery and smelling a certain cookie and having a complete memory of the experience when he was a child and his governess brought him to have that cookie. So we all have those kind of memories, and that is very much shaping the way that we define trust. So we all want that feeling of trust, and the reason is simple. When you think about a bunch of, I always use gazelles, um, when they eat, they're worried that a predator is gonna eat them, but if they eat grass while they're in a group, then they feel safer because they can rely on others to run if a lion comes. So we are always relying on a group to let down our guard. And we humans know that it's not always good to follow the herd. And that's why we have oxytocin is just one of our chemicals. We want all of them. Uh, mm -hmm. So when you're with a group, they get on your nerves and mammals have conflict. So you're like, can I trust this group or not? Can I trust this individual or not? And monkey studies have shown that monkeys make very careful decisions one monkey grooms another's fur. And then like, if I groom your fur, what will you do for me? And they actually remember. <laughs> um, when you had that good bonding feeling in the past, like I can trust this person, that stimulated your oxytocin and built an oxytocin highway. And today it's easy for you to trust in that kind of situation. But anytime your trust was betrayed in the past, then a threat chemical was released and now it's hard for you to trust in that kind of situation. So I'm always telling people that you can end up not trusting anyone, but you have to take responsibility for your own oxytocin pathways and to say, you know what? I always get a bad feeling about this or that. Well, I'm going to make an effort to feel safe with that person or that situation but not by buying them a car or even by buying them coffee, but small steps like a monkey is offering, like I'll groom your fur and then I'll wait to see what you do. And then I'll groom someone else's fur and wait to see what they do. Hmm. And the last one is serotonin. So serotonin yeah. is very complicated. All of these have some uh, equivalents to a pill form. And in serotonin, it's, it's equivalent to antidepressants. But in the 1980s, it was learned that when a monkey dominates another monkey, that serotonin is released. And this totally fit a whole century of research showing that animals are very competitive and they strive for the one-up position all the time, but they back down when they're in the weaker position because they don't want to get bitten. Mm -hmm. So when a monkey sees that it's in the position of strength, serotonin is released, and then it has the confidence to reach for a piece of food because it knows that it's not going to get bitten by a stronger monkey. So we have inherited a brain that is always comparing ourselves to others and saying, mm -hmm. am I in the position of strength or am I in the position of weakness? Now, as a result, we, we tend to torture ourselves by focusing on other people's strengths and always seeing ourselves in the one down position. Now, it's important to remember that serotonin is not aggression. It's a calm feeling. So the one-up monkey is not attacking the weaker monkeys, but it is taking all the bananas for itself and then saying, oh, 
I have more bananas than I need. Here, you can have my bananas as long as you acknowledge that they're my bananas. So that's, <laughs> that's what's going on, you know? So the good feeling that you have when you think, you know, I, I can get some bananas on my own. I, I don't have to always see myself as the weak monkey who's dependent on other people's bananas. That stimulates the good feeling of serotonin. This is a, a big one because we're always hearing, if you want to feel good, stop comparing yourself to others. Yes. And, and you wrote that you may think equality would make you happy, but the closer you get to it, the more your brain finds tiny differences to dwell on and that your mammal brain will always keep track of it. It's just to learn to know it's there and work around it. Yes, exactly. To, to not mm. dwell on anything that puts me in a negative comparison. I mean, it's, it's fine to notice it because I may need that to function effectively in the world, but to not dwell on it and to make sure to take time out every day to focus on my own strengths and feel confidence in my own strengths, which um, after the book you mentioned, I have another book called The Science of Positivity that focuses more on this. You mentioned in the book, one of the tools was trying to balance these four chemicals. Oh, what I said was, if you feel like you're good at activating one of them, then you want to make a decision, what new circuits am I going to build? You might want to build the circuit for the one that you think you're not as good at. But if you do that first, then you might find it hard. So I said, if you want, you could just start with the one you think you're already good at and stimulate it in a new way just to prove to yourself your power to build new circuits. Or if you're in a rush to get one of chemicals that you feel like you might be missing, then you might start with that. So it's a way to plan mm -hmm. your own projects. I don't use the word balance because doctors have used this as a euphemism. Like when someone is behaving badly, they say that there's an imbalance of their chemicals which implies that there's some kind of right balance, which there's not, and every, but it's, it's just a euphemism that has come to be used. And the idea mm -hmm. that I'm dominant in a certain chemical, a lot of people are doing that now with um, personality typing theories. And I don't like that because people tend to use that as an excuse. I'm a low dopamine person or I'm a high dopamine person. And we're all all of them. We all need all of them. So it's just important to know that not only do we all need all of them, but we all have dips in all of them. It, like you don't have all of them in one day, right? It, it varies. Oh, no, I think you, you do have all of them in one day. It's just you might not have all of them going up in one minute. <laughs> like okay. I can have a peak experience all the time. Mm-hmm. You say that uh, developing new habits, rewiring, it takes a lot of mental energy that we should start the day or start with what takes the most energy. Yeah, so we do have more energy in the morning. And the big thing is if I do something that's hard for me and that's scary, and then I might risk being in a bad mood afterwards. And so you have to take the initiative to say, um, I'm, I'm going to do this thing that's hard for me. And then I'm going to plan another activity after to uh, give myself some positivity instead of letting yourself just go from one negative thought to another. Yeah. And during this pandemic and, yeah. and, and physical distancing, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of cortisol levels are high. Do you have any specific tips during this time where it's more challenging to feel good or to have those happy chemicals? Anything specific that you'd suggest? Sure. Um, I have been distancing from the news. So I watch zero news. I think they have totally exaggerated this whole thing. And group alarmism is the way that mammals bond. Because when a gazelle is looking for food, they'd rather look in an isolated spot because they're going to get more food that way. But when a lion comes, they can't go to greener pasture. They have to stick with the group. So every group tries to keep its members together by scaring them about what will happen if you leave the group. So this is what the news does. And I think it's a very unhealthy thing. 
So that's um, my basic thing. Mm -hmm. Um, The other, I always try to focus on what good can come out of this. And I mean for you, I don't mean for society. So Mm -hmm. imagine yourself a year from now and you have some new skill or some, some new, or your children have some new habit. You're like, wow, during that hard time last year, we didn't realize that we were building this fabulous skill. So that's that's what I try to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a good time to to build new habits. <laughs> yeah, and and that uh, the trouble is that requires you have to do some things that are hard for you that make you feel bad. And most people don't want to do things that make them feel bad right now. They because they think, oh, life is hard enough, so I'm just going to divert myself. But just plan to tackle those challenges in small steps, and you'll see that tackling challenges feels much better than just doing routine entertainment. Mm -hmm. This is like a personal question, and I'm pretty sure you have the answer, so I wanted to get your feedback on it. This is something I've noticed in my experience, like when I was dating, I noticed that I was attracted to certain men based on their smell, and others, their natural smell Totally repulsed me and yes. it, it only clicked when I met my my partner and he also commented on my smell <laughs> and, and it was so funny because in the beginning we were dating and we I even said I feel like an animal because I yeah. love your smell like sm- smelling each other's necks and I want to see Have you learned anything about that? Because I've heard that we find our mates through our sense of smell as well. Yes. So the word for this is pheromones, P-H-E-R-E-M-O-N-E-S. If you search on that, you'll find the research. And, and I, you know, I think it's true. It's I don't study this because it's not happy chemicals. But Mm -hmm. I guess, yeah, when you fall in love with the person, they make you happy. I do have that part in the book. But what they think, which is mind-blowing, is that people have different immune systems, and your smell is a reflection of your immune system. And if you are attracted to someone whose immune system is different from yours, then your children will have a wider range of immunities. (laughs) Can you believe it? Now, that sounds like so far-fetched, but I'll just give you um, a simple example. Everyone has heard of the peacock's tail, right? The beautiful, Mm -hmm. colorful peacock's tail. And many people have heard that the female does not have any beauty. It's all in the male, but the females choose the guy with the biggest tail. And the guy with the biggest tail actually is less healthy in the sense that they can't run from predators because the tail is so big. So why does the female choose them? And they found that the size of your tail is a perfect indicator of the strength of your immune system. And so if you pick a guy with good feathers, then your children will have a stronger immune system. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Wow. I yeah. knew you had an, uh, some sort of an answer <laughs> for that, but I've never heard anyone I know talk about, I love their smell, yeah. it, not perfumes or, or, and that was, it was very interesting. So where can listeners find more about you, your articles, your book? I saw you have a training online, anyone that's interested in becoming a certified inner mammal yeah. trainer. So talk yeah. more about that. So I have a website, innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And I have videos also, and I made them entertaining. And it's a series of five-minute videos, so you could even watch them with your family. I also have a parent-teacher page, innermammalinstitute.org slash parents-teachers. And I created... Uh, a version of the book for eight-year-olds and a version of the book for teenagers I have on there. Um, I have a Facebook page, Loretta Bruning, PhD. And then I have a Facebook discussion group, which is Inner Mammal Institute. Oh, and the big thing, you know what? I have a new thing. I have a weekly reader Q&A. So I would love to have people join that. So I call it a Zoom chat. If you go to intermammalinstitute.org slash Zoom chat every week, uh, it's noon Eastern time on Saturday. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and also you can listen to the old ones. And I have a podcast. Et aussi une page en français, uh, intermammalinstitute.org slash français. 
So I'll end with one last question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a mother, a parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences. Keeping motherhood inspired, what one thing have you found kept you inspired and energized throughout your mom journey? Well, it's almost a cliche, I guess, but um, to see the world the way children do it uh, is, is really fun. And to see each thing that they encounter for the first time and how they make sense of it. So, and to know that, I guess, that you, you're really affecting someone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, Keeping Motherhood Inspired podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening, two, three, four, five, six stars, whatever you feel reflect podcast. This will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye guys.